0: Dr. Hernandez, I want to welcome you to Coco Pods, a podcast of the Broad Center for Natural Deliveries Foundation. And I want to thank you very much, I know you are very busy, for joining us as we discuss very important issues affecting pregnant women in Georgia, with a closer look at reasons a sizable number of Black women and women of color may have bad outcomes during pregnancy and from pregnancy-related events. My name is Dr. Bola Sugadi. I'm a women's health specialist. And I also talk about the issues relating to women having bad outcomes in pregnancy and how we can reduce these issues. I like the fact that you're just a riot. <laughs> and um, I know you, you come in contact with students and residents. Tell us, how do you help students and residents? How do you inspire them from your story of your career journey over the years? And also as a Latinx woman yourself, how do you inspire uh, up and coming professionals?
1: Oh, absolutely. I think just sometimes just being who you are, you know, like I don't try to change who I am. I always talk about my story because I've overcome so many barriers and challenges, especially growing up in New York and in the South Bronx. And so I think there are ways that you have to connect with someone personally. And so you find that common ground with who you're trying to connect with, with your students. And then that's the hook, right? And then you give your students skill sets. You don't coddle them, right? Because we don't do any justice if we coddle our learners. And I see them, you know, they're learners and future leaders, and they're adults. So we, we make sure that we work with them in a way where I think of my approaches to work as a side-by-side approach and not a top down approach, because I'm a lifelong learner. And I see our relationship as bi-directional because we learn from one another. And I give them I give them the opportunity to be on the ground, to learn those skill sets, to conduct the focus groups to analyze the surveys, to conduct the surveys, but then think about how does it apply to clinical practice? If I'm in my third year of medical school and I'm presenting a case, how am I thinking about this case holistically and comprehensively? Yes, you're presenting with these symptoms, but then what are the contextual issues that are surrounding that person? Or if you give them a prescription or a treatment plan, can they access what you're trying to give them? Are there barriers? Do they have transportation to get to the pharmacy? Because that might be contributing to why they're not adherent to their medication, right? And so providing them with those opportunities at the Center for Maternal Health Equity, we're always open to our learners. We're really thinking about how to infuse a lot of what we're doing in in our training of our providers within the first year of medical school. And so how we're thinking of developing a maternal health track within School of Medicine or figuring out ways at Morehouse School of Medicine through Fundamentals of Medicine to incorporate more stuff related to maternal health. We did receive funding from HRSA to train our preventive medicine residents on actually how to conduct population health around maternal health, right? So training them in epidemiology, training them in research and survey methods, having them do rotations with our Georgia Department of Public Health Um, In the maternal and child health, having them sit on the maternal mortality review committee to have real life experiences that they can take that will make them better providers in the future or better public health professionals, better PAs, better basic scientists, right? Because sometimes basic scientists are trained to think one way, but when you have an interdisciplinary team, it helps you to think more holistically about how Is a mouse or cell model going to translate into real outcomes for our population? How is studying placentas going to translate into real outcomes for our population? That's, I think, the difference in how you conduct mentorship and how you see your learners that you work with every day. And that's what I hope to impart on my learners and students that I work with, which I have a big team of of learners from public health and first-year medical students and some fourth-year in-residents that work on a couple of projects with me.
0: Well, Dr. Hernandez, you have a doctorate. Can you tell us about your, your training? And you are very well published. And I know just even with the students in the room with me as we're recording, can you tell us, how did you get to where you are from a training point of view? And do you want to tell them it's doable, right? Yeah, it is doable.
1: <laughs> so with the training, so my trajectory is really unique because I might age myself here and I know I look really young, but, <laughs> but when I was in college, I always knew I wanted to go into public health. I grew up in the Bronx around the time where HIV AIDS was just at a rampant, where if you got HIV, you knew you were gonna die within a year. And my best friend's father actually got HIV and then AIDS and died. And I couldn't understand, and I wanted to understand more, where did this disease come from? How is it spreading? Why is it affecting, at that time, it was affecting more black and brown communities. And so I started doing research and said, okay, I want to go into public health. I always thought I wanted to be a doctor, but then I knew that (laughs) I couldn't deal with blood. I couldn't deal with, you know, the responsibility of someone's life in that way. I know myself. I'm very emotional. I wear my heart on my sleeve. And I was like, okay, public health is a good way because I really love doing research. I, I knew I wanted to do research. And so I became an anthropology major. Because I knew I also wanted to work in like understanding cross-cultural perspectives, looking at unique ways of doing research, which helped me to become a qualitative researcher, right? And I'm trained and I'm very good at rigorous qualitative methods. That led to coming to Atlanta and getting my master's in public health at Emory University, where I studied behavioral health and worked on R01 NIH-funded grants. So that's where I got my training in clinical interventions and how to look at a control group versus an intervention group, how to start writing proposals and start writing papers. At that time, I wasn't published and it was because I was an MPH student. So all the doctoral students got to have their names on the publications. I got acknowledgments at that point, right? And I was bitter, but you know, I let it slide (laughs) because I knew it would eventually happen. And then my, so this is where it all started to come together. During my MPH, you have to do a practicum experience. So you you rotate within a community-based organization or a lot of people went to CDC. I knew I wanted to do something more than CDC. I knew that my heart wasn't in the federal government. So I did a practicum experience with a Hispanic civil rights and advocacy organization and actually developed an intervention around a children's book to help children and parents get together, read, but learn about the triggers of asthma. And this was a project that was funded through the Environmental Protection Agency. That was my first funding opportunity. And I was a student and they saw my work and asked me to stay on. And so it was at that time where I oversaw all of the maternal and child health programs across the country, for this organization using a model of community health workers. And so I was specialized in working with community health workers to deliver that information and evaluate outcomes related to that. At the time, I also wrote the first health report of Latinos in the state of Georgia and developed advocacy trainings for all of our constituents and partners across, not just in Georgia, but in the Southeast, because this was also a time where there was a lot of anti-immigrant settlement happening in Georgia and where they actually passed their first immigration legislation. So Georgia, what people don't know, Georgia has the 10th largest Latinx population, but we're number one in deportation. We're not even a border state, but there are so many, again, historical, anti-immigrant, anti-Blackness, oppressive, Thinking here that causes a lot of that. So, because of that, I actually had to leave my job um, because my life was being threatened um, by different white supremacist groups. And so that's when I pursued my PhD and at that time wanted to start writing. So, I volunteered to write papers while I was there. And now I have, in just five years, I guess, over 35 publications which is where it is an assistant professor where some people wanna be, but that's even more than where you can be. And on a trajectory might have six papers in progress and published nine papers last year alone. That's the only way that people will know about your work. And so that's very important, but I don't just publish in peer reviewed journal. I write white papers. And I also make sure that every single article I publish, I put in layman's terms into a paragraph so that the community understands what research question I ask and I'm trying to address. Because my work has no value if just academicians know about it. I want my community that I vow to serve and that I made an oath to serve to understand where I'm at and where I'm trying to go.
0: Wow, Dr. Hernandez, thank you so much. I pick up just even translating your research papers into layman's terms. There was a time that I took on the project of an article, a project called OBGYN Patient News, in which we translated very scientific data into layman's terms. So thank you so much for just doing that. And I know you are super busy. I just know that from even working with you. And I now see, just looking at the way your publishing papers writing grants. And I want to talk about your March 2021 publication, one of your several papers in which you stated that in addressing the sexual and reproductive health disparities for Black and Latina women, there's a need for the development of innovative programs that are culturally and contextually tailored so that they align with lived experiences. And you did this paper with Chandler Gleam, Parker, Wells, And the title of the paper was Developing Culturally Tailored M Health Tools to Address Sexual and Reproductive Health Outcomes Among Black and Latina Women, a Systematic Review. Could you please talk about this paper with us?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I'm a part of a research team and we're called Synergistic Sisters in Science. We're a BIPOC team of investigators from Georgia Tech Georgia State University, Emory University School of Nursing, and Morehouse School of Medicine. And we look at research through a multidisciplinary lens. And one of the things that we've been doing is thinking about how we can use technology to really get at sexual and reproductive health, right? Because if you don't have that, then you're not going to have good maternal health. And so this is more of like that preconception or even... As a pregnant mom, taking care of yourself, making sure you're going to your preventive screenings. And so how do we do that? And so we've been, um, we just received an NIH grant, an R34, to test a mobile application that we developed called Savvy Her. And Savvy Her is about empowering women and amplifying their voices to understand how to have optimal health. And so it provides information on having a sexually satisfying life, but then protecting yourself. Because one thing that people forget is that HIV is still out there. We're in the epicenter of the HIV epidemic that's been happening for a very long time. Georgia has three counties that have the highest rates of HIV in the world. So this was a part of the Ending the HIV Epidemic Initiative. But one thing that we saw is that a lot of interventions are created from a top-down sort of approach, where people believe they have all of this expertise and are going to say, this is going to help women. What we like to do is, again, center the lived experiences. So we conducted a lot of formative research. We did surveys. We spoke with women. We had women sit on our community advisory board to tell us, if we created something for you to help you, what would you like in it? What would it look like, right? Because some of the things that we see, for instance, like even Band-Aids, right? We know that Band-Aids now come in our colors, but they didn't. And that's the same thing sometimes with pictures, right? If I have a health issue and I want to look up something... I see images of people that don't look like me. And so I'm like, is that how it's supposed to look? Because it looks really different on my skin. So it's little things like that that people don't understand that make a big difference. Because when you see yourself in something and something that was created specifically for you, it makes you feel valued and you're more likely to stick to it. And so that's why we say we need to make sure that we center the experiences of the woman that we're trying to serve. And not just culturally, because we know In Black and Latinx culture, it varies. Black culture in the South is very different than Black culture up North. And so contextually, we have to make sure that it's relevant. So how is it addressing the issues that surround women specifically in Georgia and in the South? What are we thinking about? Sometimes in our pictures, we include, like we have a site in Albany, we'll include pictures of Albany, Georgia, so people can see that that's their community, that this is where they belong. And so those are things as we consider the development interventions that we have to think about context, we have to center the lived experiences of women and make sure that they're involved in the planning of the intervention and the development of the intervention, and then the testing of the intervention. And so that's what we mean. A lot of research that has been conducted also has been conducted by non-BIPOC women who are developing interventions for us but forgetting about that lived experience because you can go into the data and see everything that exists, but there's something really unique about that lived experience, about that woman amplifying her voice and feeling empowered to tell her story and why certain things are working and why things aren't. And so we take all of that into consideration and that's what that literature review was trying to detail. What's missing, who's developing stuff and how does it need to be developed in the right way that will make an impact and produce the outcomes that we want. A lot of people can create mobile apps, but they have to have evidence behind them. They have to be tied to some type of clinical or social behavioral outcome.
0: Wow, wow, wow. I'm talking to Dr. Natalie Hernandez. She is a assistant professor in the Department of Community Health and Preventive Medicine and the executive director of the Center for Maternal Health Equity at the Morehouse School of Medicine. Dr. Hernandez, I have two more questions for you. What is the HER, like H-E-A-R, HER campaign? Can you tell us about that?
1: Yeah, so the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, which some of you may have heard of, (laughs) who's been telling us about vaccine guidance and recommendations, had developed a campaign exactly on what we discussed, right? Amplifying women's voices. So women essentially telling their stories on not being heard during birth and the crisis that we're currently experiencing. Because as much as people don't wanna name it as a crisis, we have a crisis. Cause right now in 2021, in a country that has the most resources, no woman should be dying from birth. This should be a beautiful experience. No woman should be fearing going in on something that she should be enjoying because she thinks she might die, especially a Black woman. So the Hear Her campaign is amplifying women's voices to be able to tell that story and hoping that people can learn from them and understand and then share their experiences as well. And I don't know if you know this, Dr. Shigari, but we took it a step further <laughs> at Morehouse School of Medicine. We actually have our own hear-her story. We call it our near-miss story. And so we're collecting stories from women who almost died as a result of pregnancy complications. And we're using a framework called the three delays model to really understand those barriers to getting to care and receiving care and then quality of care. And we're hoping that through these near misses, because a near miss is a more useful indicator of what happened or during that process that contributed to a woman almost dying. And through there, we can develop recommendations for not just clinical practice, but also for further research or for policy. For instance, we've had about seven women share their stories We were able to work with our Georgia Perinatal Quality Collaborative to get two of our women on their patient advisory councils, because we know that that's essential, again, to making change. So right away from this research, we were able to be influential in policy. We were able to use these stories to talk to Senator Ossoff to say, hey, we're doing good work at HBCUs. Y'all should put more funding into HBCUs if you want our communities to really solve the issues. Because if any solution is gonna come out, it should come from the institutions that have been in the community for a long time and work with them. Third, again, just really seeing how we can further this research. And this is with Black women, this is with Latinx women, and this is with indigenous women. So all women of color, were looking to hear from their stories from participating, amplifying your voices, being able to really share. We're collecting pictures from women and we're gonna feature women on our website as well. And so to start developing our own campaign for us, by us with unique and diverse experiences. And so the Hear Her is CDC's campaign and it's that, it's a campaign. Ours is a research study but in essence, will turn into a campaign because the voices are so crucial to understanding what almost happened and how we can prevent that almost happening from happening again.
0: Wow, wow. And then just my last question. I know you are so busy. I'm so grateful to you. Honestly, my team, the whole women of Georgia, we're grateful to you for being on this podcast. But the last question is, What can women and their caregivers do from their point of view on a one-by-one basis to improve their own pregnancy care and pregnancy outcome? And I know you have alluded to this in so many different ways during this podcast, but just in summarization, what can they do to improve their own pregnancy care and pregnancy outcome?
1: Absolutely. I think the first thing, that you can do is don't be afraid. We know that there's so much fear out there, but these are rare occurrences, so don't be afraid. You should be more afraid about your comorbidities. So just take really taking care of yourself. I know that sometimes it sounds so harsh about personal responsibility, but we all have a role, right? So first we need to take care of ourselves. We need to make sure that we're eating the right things, we're drinking plenty of water, we're taking care of our mental health and that we're equipped with tools and resources to be able to communicate to our healthcare providers in the right way for instance sometimes we don't know what questions to ask our healthcare providers sometimes we don't know what to expect in our first visit or what's the point of prenatal care right some people some of y'all think that what's the point of prenatal care i go there for 5 minutes it takes me an hour to get there and then i leave but we're changing that, right? We have providers that make sure that you're taken care of. And that five minute appointment, you're in control of that appointment. Come with questions to ask. Talk about what your body's experiencing. Sometimes we're so afraid to share that things might be wrong because we're afraid and we don't want to know the truth, right? But you have to be truthful. You have to contact your healthcare provider whenever you sense any little thing going wrong. If you have a headache, If your legs feel a certain way, if your heart, if you feel flutters, if you feel so stressed, if you're super sleepy, all of those things, just make sure that you're in contact and you're educating yourself, but then also develop that relationship with your provider. If you don't have a provider that you see constantly and your provider changes, make sure you're taking notes, have someone there that can support you. I know right now it's hard because of covid But there are people, support persons like doulas that you can get if you don't feel super secure with your provider or even your aunties and your grandparents and your partners. They all can provide that support for you, but you have to let them know that you need that. No one can read your mind. And then hold your physicians accountable. Hold your healthcare providers accountable for things that they might have missed or things that they're not asking you that you know should be asked or not following up with you. Your pregnancy is not over as soon as you give birth. More than half of the deaths, and in Georgia, 80% of the deaths that happened were in the postpartum period. So make sure you see a healthcare provider in your postpartum. Even if you didn't have complications, just ensure that you're okay. Check your blood pressure. We know that right now it's with insurance, they're not covering blood pressure cuffs, but we're working on that. That's why these policies and procedures are so important because if we know remote monitoring and blood pressure cuffs can assist women in the postpartum period, then they should be covered, right? We covered a whole bunch of other stuff, but something as simple as a blood pressure cuff can save someone's life in the postpartum period or just in pregnancy in general. So those are little things that you can do but also inform yourself about policy. Speak to your local legislators. Let them know that this issue is important and that it needs to be resolved and more resources need to be poured into women and children. We're a society that claims we love women and children, but when it comes to putting resources into these two populations, we don't do it and we now need to hold people accountable for that. And so share, amplify your voice, empower yourself, And if you don't know how to do it, it's simple as an email. Like think about what you would tell your mom or someone that pissed you off, right? But do it in a a more diplomatic way. (laughs) Those are just like tidbits I would share. I know it's not super extreme, but I I just feel like sometimes we just need those little things or those step-by-step guidance to get us through. And look, tomorrow's never promised. So every day that you're here, be grateful. Pay it forward. Pass on something that someone has done so good for you. Because kindness goes such a long way. And kindness can be the difference of saving someone's life and checking in on them. So just do those little things. We're all here together and we're all in this together and we're going to solve it together.
0: Wow, Dr. Hernandez, this has been such a wonderful discussion with you. I want to thank you so much for your time. Just for your knowledge, sharing your knowledge with women all over the world and just being very strong and passionate about what you do because this is one of the things that help move things forward. You are knowledgeable, you are strong, you are passionate. And uh, I'm just very grateful to you for your time this morning. I know you have so many other things coming in the next two minutes. but well, thank you so much for coming on Coco Pods podcast today.
1: And thank you for everything you do for the community and your practice is just amazing. And I'm glad that women have the option to get services from you and your colleagues. So thank you for what you do and for serving on our board and just being such a strong voice. Like I said, you and I are in this together. It's not me. You make me better, Dr. (laughs) Shigade.
0: Thank you, Dr. Hernandez. Have a good day now.
1: You too. Take care.
0: Thank you.